This is Kit Malthouse introducing the first of our experimental new housing podcasts. Uh, live, well not live, but recorded here in Westminster. Um, a series, we hope, of uh, short discussions about pithy issues in the uh, area policy area of housing. And I'm very pleased to say that for our inaugural podcast, we have our very own grand design here in Westminster, the MP for South Norfolk, Richard Bacon, who was one of the first members to jump up and down from the back benches after I was appointed to talk about his own personal mission, and I think it's fair to say probably obsession, uh, which is around self-build housing. Uh, just for a bit of background, Richard, perhaps you could tell us how you got involved in the campaign for more self-built houses. So six or seven years ago, I met Adrie Dijverstein, who is the godfather of self-building custom house building in the Netherlands. He was a member of the Dutch Parliament, and then he resigned from the house, the house of uh, the lower house in the Netherlands and became the mayor of Almere, a community near Amsterdam. And he encouraged the creation of very large numbers of self-build uh, plots. And he believed that people should be able to bring forward their own projects to their own design. Two years after that, I came very high up in the ballot for private members' bills, and mm -hmm. I got through Parliament what is now the Self-Build and Custom House Building Act, mm -hmm. which requires every local authority to keep a register of people who want to uh, get a piece of land to build a house. The government then kindly strengthened my legislation a year later through the Housing and Planning Act, Chapter 2, which basically says in addition to keeping a register, a local authority must also give enough suitable development permissions to meet the demand on the register. So the more people register, the greater is ratcheted up the legal obligation on a council to provide service plots of land, or at least to provide planning permissions for service plots of land. And it's to address a fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is that in this country, the supply of housing doesn't rise to meet demand. Mm -hmm. The consequence of that is the price is going up and up and up. In most things, generally, the supply rises to meet the demand of whatever it is that you happen to want, whether it's tables or chairs or mm -hmm. green corduroy trousers. That doesn't happen in the housing uh, market, if one can call it market, because it's dominated by a small number of very large mm -hmm. suppliers, the famous, well-known volume house builders, who will build when? and only when it is sufficiently profitable to do so. Now, that might be good for their shareholders, but the job of, of government and of the ref, the referee, creating the ecosystem in which all these folk operate, is to make sure that everybody has a fair crack of the whip. And at the moment, they don't, particularly young people, have no chance of being able to afford somewhere to live at all. So I want to change all that. Yeah, no, I understand. And I, and I, I, I hear the mission. Just uh, explain to our listeners what you think the potential might be. I mean, where in Europe, for example, is there a significant self-built market? And what kind of volume of housing does it produce? So in the Netherlands, a population of 17 million people, about a quarter of the population of the UK, they're doing 60,000 units a year of self-build and custom house building. Uh, so in the UK, we're probably doing 12, 13, 14,000. It's probably as big in total as one of the big volume house builders like, say, Barrett or Taylor Wimpy. But it could be a lot bigger. OK, and so and now there are some big sites in the UK. At your behest, I went to visit Graven Hill. Uh, near Bista, which is a very exciting development, I think, of about 1,400 self-building custom-built homes. Now, it's, no, it's 1,900, actually. 1,900, yes. that's right. 1900. Now, that, I understand, is the biggest site in Europe. Yes, it is. Charwell District Council borrowed the money from, the, I think, the Public Loans Works Board and bought an MOD site, Ministry of Defence site, and they're bringing forward 1,900 service plots of land where people can bring forward their own so projects. So what, what, what were the ingredients that made that site happen? I mean, what needs to be assembled from a policy point of view to make it happen? 
actually relatively little because the legislation to enable uh, a council to issue a local development order, an LDO as it's called, is already there. It's just it hadn't been done. They did the first LDO in the country. And what that means is you remove the planning risk. You basically say to people, you will get planning permission. And actually, the trick, I think, in all of this is to take the reason projects take so long to come forward in, in the conventional space as well as elsewhere is there are so many risks. And what we need to do is identify what those risks are and then de-risk them. And what they did in uh, Graven Hill at Charwell District Council was get rid of the planning risk. So you, when, you, when you go and buy a plot or register for a plot, you get given what's called a plot passport. And as long as you meet certain very basic conditions, then you, guarantee, you know you will get planning permission. Okay, but was it a decision of an individual on the council? Was there a particular enthusiast? Does it, does it need a kind of individual promoter in an area to push it? What it needs, and it had in this case, is the enthusiasm of the political level. In this case, Councillor Barry Woods, the leader of Charwell right. District Council, was a real enthusiast enthusiast and he seized it and said, I'm going to do this. And we find that where I say we, the Right to Build Task Force, which I'm now involved with, which promotes and has tried to help implement the legislation across the country, we're working, providing, uh, offering subsidised expert help to councils that want to do this. The councils we're working with most closely, like Plymouth and Tenbridge and uh, Leeds and so on, uh, as well as uh, Graven Hill, uh, Charwell, they're the ones where the political leadership wants to make something happen. And if you've got the political leadership saying to the planning officers and the planning team, we want this to happen, then you get more actually happening. So essentially, would you say that the, the, the biggest barrier that we could overcome or the biggest thing we could do is eff- effectively sort of sell it to local authorities, that it should be part of their mix in their local plan. Very much so. And in, in actual fact, um, although it's true that as the more people register, the greater is ratcheted up the legal obligation on the councils to provide more planning permissions, and some councils think, oh, well, that, that creates a, an, another duty for us. Actually, it strengthens their arm when they're negotiating with big developers, because they can say to the big house builders, by the way, when we see your plans coming forward, we expect you to include an element of service plots and self-build, because we have a legal obligation to do this. This isn't planning guidance. This isn't uh, advice. This isn't something that's recommended. It's not just part of the local plan that we're thinking of pushing through. This is the law. You have to provide service plots to meet demand on demand on the register. We do. So come forward with your plans that, that show you how show us how you're going to do that. What Otherwise, the, we'll take, not take you so seriously. Okay, I understand. Well, I mean, one of the questions that's been raised with me around self-build is how does it work from an infrastructure point of yeah. view and a community contribution point of view? Yeah. And they, people, local authority leaders challenge yeah. it on the basis that it doesn't produce the same contribution as a normal development would. Is that the case? Or? Indeed, at the moment, um, self-building, custom house building is exempt or can be exempt from the community, community infrastructure levy. And it's obvious that in the end, uh, anybody who's going to occupy a house... Um, is going to need fresh water, drainage, electricity, broadband, uh, and so on, and that the person who's going to end up paying for that ought to be the person who lives in the house. The reason that this uh, temporary exemption came forward, and I think it is temporary, it's to help give the self-building, custom house-building sector a bit of a kick-start, which I think it still does need in this country, is to try and even up the playing field a bit. There are some other tax disincentives that are unintentional. It's to do with a rather complex thing about when the engineering works necessary for a service plot of land become vatable. We're talking to the Treasury about all of that. But but essentially, it's to give it a bit of a kickstart. What I firmly believe is that actually government and Homes England 
could play a more muscular role in creating and then offering to people to buy if they can afford it and to rent if they can't service plots of land at a price that covers the cost. If you do it at scale, of course, you get the economies of scale. Mm. So you can produce a service plot of land that somebody could plug and play a custom-built house that they had manufactured elsewhere and then delivered on the back of a lorry, as happens in the Netherlands and in Germany quite routinely. You could, you could create a service plot of, plot of land that you could sell for... £40,000 or, or, or less, and make a profit, because the cost of doing it is between fifteen and £20,000. In the Netherlands, the city of Amsterdam is taking people off the statutory register of housing need mm-hmm. and letting them have access to a, a plot that costs €40,000, and then they're able to bring forward a house that costs €120,000, £105,000, and if they can't afford to buy the plot... Uh, then they can rent it at a peppercorn rent until they can afford it. So, um, I mean, look, I, I share enthusiasm for self-build, and I'm quite happy as housing minister to go out and, and sell it to local authority leaders that it should be a big part of the mix of what they produce, not least because, as far as I can see, it, it propels the adoption of new technology in home building. <laughs> Apart from selling it to local authority leaders... Are there things you think the government can and should be doing further to kind of expand the, the growth of it as a sector? I or are the tools basically there? We just need to get local authorities I think to use many them. of the tools are there if local authorities choose to pick them up and use them. And there's a, lot, a great deal of advice out there in the uh, Right to Build Toolkit, which is available on the web, uh, which is developed by uh, the Right to Build Task Force in conjunction with the... Uh, Ministry of Housing. There's a lot of expert advice there now that's available. And there's, as I said, through the task force, subsidised expert help to help local authorities who want to actually do something in this space, who've who've got ideas and would like to turn those ideas into reality, uh, to help them to do that. I want to get to the point where it's perfectly normal that when you want to buy a service plot of land, you go along to a plot shop, just like there is one in in, uh, Charwell District Council at Graven Hill, and you buy a plot. Now, that could be normal here. It's not, but it could be. I met a young man um, a couple of years ago uh, who was a Dutch guy who was over here, um, and I was in a cafe got chatting to him, and he showed me on his phone his plot of land. He was 24 years old. He ran a mobile phone business in the Netherlands. He showed me his plot of land that he'd bought and he owned at the age of 24. He'd not built his house yet, but he was going to, and he'd already got his plot of land. Now, we could make that much more normal, and the thing that excites me about it more than anything else is there's a whole generation anyone between the age of 20 to 40, who've kind of been locked out because the, the multiples of average income it requires to buy an average dwelling now have gone so out of kilter because mm. the supply has not been big enough that uh, lots of young people are basically giving up on the idea that they'll ever be able to have a place of their own. Now, that's completely wrong. We managed to get a man to the moon 50 years ago. We've managed to split the atom. This is a lot simpler. It's making sure everyone has a roof over their heads. Mm-hmm. And the best way to have that happen is to unlock the energy which is available among the people themselves. As Rod Hackney, the architect, once said, it is a dangerous thing to underestimate human potential and the energy which can be generated when people are given the opportunity to help themselves. Well, that's a great note on which to end. I mean, I definitely share your aspiration for for young people to access housing. And I think... You know, there are a large number of young people who feel that the baby boom generation has pulled the ladder up behind them. Yes, indeed. And we need to do something to correct that. I'm also very attracted to self-build, not least because I can't think of anything more conservative, Mm. uh, frankly, than giving people the opportunity to take control of their own destiny in the form of their home. And I was struck when I went to Graven Hill by the number, by the... Well, first of all, by the effervescence mm. of the development that, the, you know, that you've got a, a Swiss chalet next to a Cotswold cottage mm. next to a house that looked like a stealth bomber, mm. an extraordinary kind of effervescence.
adolescence, but also the sense of community and ownership already yes. in a site that's only partly built mm. because of that sense of involvement and investment in the site uh, by the people who live there. So for me, I share your excitement about it. I mean, we'll have to talk further about the pol policy prescriptions maybe, but for the moment, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us, and I look forward to working with you over the months the remaining months that I'm allowed to be Housing Minister, we don't last very long normally, um, uh, to make it a reality. Thank you very much. So, I hope you enjoyed that uh, podcast, ladies and gentlemen, first in a series. You can get more and more information about my work on my Facebook profile, kit.malthouse, on Twitter, at kitmalthouse, on Instagram, at kit underscore malthouse, and on my website, kitmalthouse.com.